Sometimes it is felt that clinicians do not want to talk about the costs of care. Let me reshape that argument. We can always talk about the costs of care as long as those are highlighted to us in real time, not retrospectively. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast, where we tell the stories of clinicians, healthcare leaders, and innovators who are improving the way clinicians work and deliver care. On today's episode, Evidence Care's Dr. Brian Fengler interviews Dr. Amit Vashist of Ballad Health and Dr. Granville Morse of Oshner Health from a live panel at an Evidence Care employee event. They discuss why they entered the medical field and their health system's top challenges and initiatives, as well as numerous industry topics such as patients moving away from hospitals, digital health and chat GPT, health equity, and cost transparency. Enjoy this conversation with Dr. Vashist and Dr. Morse. Welcome to the Better Care Podcast Live. Uh, with me today, I have Dr. Granville Morse from Oshner Health. We have Dr. Emit Vashist from Ballad Health. I'm your host, Dr. Brian Fengler. I'm the co-founder and chief medical officer for Evidence Care. And today is a very special podcast because we are live uh, we are here with uh, the Evidence Care team as we kick off <laughs> as we kick off uh, our week of uh, company activities that we do twice a year. Um, so, Granny, Amit, very happy to have you both here with me today. Granny, I'll start with you. You're an emergency physician. Why medicine? Oh, <laughs> this is like med school. There we go. Interviews. Yeah. So. Um, I had a interesting uh, injury as a child. I had avascular necrosis of my femoral condyle, and this is to age myself right when CT scans were coming out. And uh, I was kind of an experimental rat uh, for them and, and uh, fell in love with the concept of medicine and uh, problem solving and, and taking care of people. That's awesome. So as you got into medicine, why emergency medicine? So I went to med school late. Um, I had a few interests. Uh, I liked critical care. I liked cardiology. I liked orthopedics. I couldn't stand being on call. Um, and I hate wearing ties. So uh, <laughs> emergency medicine encompassed all of those. Um, you get you get plenty of critical care, plenty of orthopedics, and plenty of cardiology in a shift in the ER. And you don't have to wear a tie. You know, you're not uh, tied to a pager. So yeah, I can I can appreciate that. Um, I mean, how about you? What, uh, why a career in medicine and, and how'd you end up becoming a hospitalist? Quite a few factors, Brian, played a role in my evolution and my decision to become a physician. Right from my early childhood, I was diagnosed with seizure disorder. So that entailed right from elementary school days, a lot of doctor visit, a lot of visit to neurologists, testing, CTs, MRIs, you name it, being on mm -hmm. medications for epilepsy. So uh, I was always in doctor's offices, very intrigued, very fascinated by the work that went on, the thinking, the criticality of decision-making, all those kind of things. So as I grew older, uh, I grew up in India, 
uh, in a middle-class uh, household. And there were not many career choices at that point of time. We were not into business or anything. So the cultural, the mentality in middle-class India at that point of time was that either you become a doctor or engineer, you gotta get settled. You don't inherit anything from your parents and everything. So I think coupled with the fact that I had all, already been exposed to so many physicians with my own medical history and uh, my old, own battle through it, I think it made an automatic choice. And suddenly I found it to be my calling as well. Yeah. So how um, had you end up becoming a hospitalist as a, as a specialty? I wanted to become a neurologist based on what I just said. Yeah. So and then when I ended up and when I immigrated to the United States, a lot of my research was in neuroscience. So I thought I would become uh, become a neurologist. As I um, researched more uh, and I looked at some of the other possibilities that existed, what when I kind of uh, thought more about it, what I found was more than the brain and its functionality, I was interested in the mind. How does that work? What are biases? I was very fascinated. I think I have been a recipient and I've been delivering psychotherapy free of charge right from my college days, to <laughs> starting from friends, colleagues and everything. And then uh, my wife ended up in an internal medicine residency at East Tennessee State University Med School. So my decision became easier. They did not have a neurology program. They mm -hmm. had what is called as a combined residency program in internal medicine and psychiatry. So I think that fed into my decision making or lack thereof. I couldn't decide whether it was going to be internal medicine. I loved psychiatry way too much, but I didn't want the internal medicine, the suddenness uh, of decision making, the equity of illnesses and the impact to see in real time uh, what your decisions around care brings to the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, uh You've been at Ballot Health for some time now. You're now chief clinical officer as well yes. as practicing clinically as a hospitalist. Um, how did you sort of move up the clinical leadership ranks uh, to, to become chief clinical officer for the system? I don't think I have a good answer to that. Here is what I think ab about it. I certainly did not plan it. I did not design it this way. One thing I was always interested right from my days in residency was process improvement, quality improvement, improving patient outcomes. So I guess I raised my hands right from my early stages of residency. Is there some kind of waste that exists in our health system? Previously, I was at the VA Medical Center, helped with certain quality improvement projects over there. Then we were, before Ballot Health, we were Legacy Mountain States, Legacy Belmont. Those were the hospitals I did my residency in. So, uh, you know, right from taking charge of inventory management, all those kind of process improvement activity, they kind of roped in one committee after another. And of course the project started getting a little more complex. And what I found was I really enjoyed the teamwork, the camaraderie. It gave me a very, very different set, uh, different high. And that coupled with an ability to see that it's not just the individual patient, but the whole unit, the whole hospital, the whole community, how you impact it became my calling. And at that point of time, I also realized that I was hardcore medicine trained. Uh, I needed to supplement my business skills, at least uh, to understand uh, finance, accounting, how that decision making happens. So then I proceeded to do an MBA at the University of Tennessee. Okay. Go balls. <laughs> Yeah. Go Tigers. <laughs> uh, now, Granny, you and I shared a little bit of a, a common journey in that we're both emergency physicians and both 
opened up urgent care clinics. Um, why don't you share with our team just a little bit about how you ended up sort of getting looped into Oshner Health in a leadership role? Yeah, I guess I got an on-the-job MBA uh, from opening up at urgent care and joining a, a group that was then acquired by Oshner Health. I was fortunate, uh, you know, certainly like Doc here, no plans of, of, of being where I am today. Um, but Oshner had been in the urgent care business about 10 years prior and didn't do it well. So when they when they got back in and acquired us, they knew that that wasn't their expertise. So they turned it over to us to run it. And I was named system chair for their, at the time, 12 to 15 clinics, depending what you count. And then we quickly grew to about 25 clinics. I was system chair for approximately five years for urgent care. And then last year was named medical director of the hospital service lines, which is a new position they created to kind of create some bandwidth. We only have one chief medical officer in Oshner Health. And as we grew, the number of people coming in reporting kind of outgrew his bandwidth. So uh, this position was created and and uh, and interviewed and, and got the spot. And uh, here I am. Yeah. Now, just to dive a little bit into sort of some of the challenges in our in the healthcare industry, um, you guys are both at systems that deal with underserved patient populations. With that view of things, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges in our healthcare system right now? And I'll leave it to you guys to decide which one wants to start. I can go with go what ahead. we're doing. Um, our previous CEO, we just had a change in, in CEOs at Oshner. Uh, Warner Thomas was our previous one. Now he's at Sutter Health. And uh, Pete November, uh, who we work closely with, assumed his position. But we're the largest health system in Louisiana. And because of that, there's some pride associated with it, but we're also one of the worst ranked states in the country for healthcare. So if you're gonna be the largest health system and the state has the worst ranking, that's reflective of you. And that's the way he took it, he took it personally, and I think it's right. So he set a goal for 40 and 30. So we're trying to move from 49 or 50 to rank 40th in 2000, or 2030. So um, when you do that and you state it, and you put your goal out there, then you start working toward it and you amass groups. And it's created collaboration with other systems throughout the state. Um, it's, it's important for us to provide access to those that don't have it, care that don't have it. Um, we've really invested uh, in that population and our uh, FQHCs have really started to make a momentous turn there, but we're not anywhere close where we need to be, but it's a stated goal. So even if we fall short, we'll have made significant improvements along the way. What kind of measures go into that ranking? So, you know, some of your regular screenings, uh, your cancer screenings, um, as well as uh, management of diabetics and hypertensive um, uh, control. And then also, what is your, what is your hospitalization rates? Um, you know, all these, all these different things kind of, kind of play in, into one, but, uh, it's been really something to watch, especially as I come out of the urgent care world into this system that's now, now doing more work than just acute urgent access. Mm -hmm. Before I get into our system priorities, let me give you a little overview of Ballad Health. So we, serve a large population, a large area. We are a 22 hospital integrated health system serving parts of Southwest Virginia, Northeast Tennessee, Eastern Kentucky, and Northwestern North Carolina. So uh, about 31 counties, 
Ballot Health was found, uh, formed as a result of merger in 2018 between Legacy Belmont and Legacy Mountain States Health Alliance. So we are bound by the terms and certification of a merger that is governed by the state of Tennessee and the Commonwealth of Virginia, something that is called as the COPA, the Certificate of Public Advantage. Very stringent conditions. Basically, they are done to ensure that we are delivering a higher quality of care while maintaining or lowering the cost of care, maintaining access to care. Now, I talked about that we were formed in 2018. You know, soon thereafter, a year, year and a half later, we had the worst pandemic that we have ever had. And life has changed in healthcare dramatically. So have priorities. So what are some of our priorities at this point of line? Number one, you know, the biggest elephant in the room is the staffing crises that we have. You start off with nursing, but I call it a clinician crisis, respiratory therapist, physical therapist, uh, you name phlebotomist, you name it. You know, I don't know how many of us, uh, how many of you in the room read a recent report which said that uh, about 100,000 nurses have left the profession um, since the start of the pandemic between 2020 and 2022. 600,000, this is important, 600,000 are projected to, to quit between now and 2027. A vast majority of those 600,000 uh, nurses would be folks with experience of 10 years or more. Mm -hmm. Now imagine that when your input and output are starkly different. We are in a crisis mode. How do you supplement, encourage, hire a workforce? Close on the heels of that is in my role, which uh, is as the chief clinical officer, in the backdrop of a staffing shortage and everything, how do you maintain quality of care? How do you maintain the performance as most of you are aware the quality of care, the clinical quality took a beating because the focus during the pandemic was survival of the patient and everything. I mean, it's tough to say, but you know, pressure ulcer prevention was not number one of my concern. It was, do I have adequate ventilators, therapeutic regimens, all those kind of things, ICU beds available, ER space available. So our quality scores have taken a terrible, terrible beating. So our work is cut out for that. That's a priority, but I'm glad to say, you know, we have done deep dives, root cause analyses. We have excellent stakeholders in our health system. As a result of that, you know, this is just hot off the press. We have out of the 17 measures we measure ourselves against, uh, we our quality of care at this point of time is better than what it was pre-pandemic. We have eight metrics that are green. Uh, we were expecting them to be less red, but we agreed. And we have seven metrics out of 17 that are in the top decile in the country and everything. So not only have we rebounded, but we have improved dramatically. That comes with a lot of responsibilities to maintain the score and everything. Financial headwinds are very, very strong for us in rural America. You deal with ballot health, our payer mix is 75% Medicare, Medicaid, TenCare, you name it. Uh, a very unfavorable payer mix uh, in a vast landscape. That doesn't make for good uh, you know, financial situation for ballot health. So recently, uh, we had three national credit rating agencies all of all three of them affirmed an A rating for valid health, and they also affirmed a stable outlook. That's hard to get when yeah. you have these health systems, right, from Cleveland clinics, providences of the world, joining the billion dollar club left and right. You know how to maintain a balanced scorecard approach. Now this is happening. This is very familiar to all of us. At the same time. 
Our priorities are how do you diversify your revenue streams as care moves more and more out of the hospital? Is there an opportunity for our venture side of things to invest in certain portfolios that make sense that are patient and community centric from a healthcare standpoint? Another priority of mine is patients are starting to move more and more from the hospital landscape to the outside landscape. You know, consumer wants to be seen at a place of their choice, which is mostly outside the hospital. So how do you move toward digitalization at the same time, keeping your focus on the safety and patient centricity in the whole equation? So those are some mm -hmm. of our priorities. Now, you, you mentioned COVID. Do you think COVID fundamentally changed our healthcare system? Or do you think it was a catalyst that sort of highlighted the deficiencies or weaknesses in our system? Actually, I think both. You know, it was a catalyst, you know. Uh, I hate to say it changed the system. As you said, Brian, I think it kind of put highlight, put the spotlight on the vast inequities that exist in our society, which kind of have inspired us for COVID to be a catalyst for change, for all the movement towards digitalization, innovation in the healthcare space, everything that is taking place, I think COVID kind of exacerbated that. It put a call to arms for all of us in the healthcare industry, and it has served as an accelerator of those efforts. Mm -hmm. Any other thoughts there, Granny? Yeah, I, I agree it was a catalyst. I think it ripped the Band-Aid off of a festering sore, to, to put it in medical terms. And it, it certainly, um, exposed uh, traditional hospital business practices and clinical practices that needed to be reassessed and then changed. And, and I think that this is going to be a change for the good. Uh, we talked a little bit last night. I'd say the less people in the hospital, the better. Um, mm -hmm. I think the more you can get care and uh, at places of convenience when appropriate, or even community care that prevents you from coming in the hospital, is going to have a bigger impact on our patient outcomes. Yeah. Um, one of the topics we talked about last night at dinner was hospital at home. What's Oshner doing for hospital at home? Are you guys going all in or what's been so the system it, approach there? Yeah, so it's it certainly, uh, we had a good discussion about it last night. Probably not ready for prime time right now, but I think it's certainly- And why is that? Um, well, uh, he brought up a good point. You know, the, the qualifications for hospital at home aren't what you think, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not something where, well, you should maybe be OBS in the hospital, so therefore you're going to do hospital at home. You're closer to an inpatient status, but not necessarily inpatient status. The payers have made this observation and inpatient uh, classification when you admit a patient very confusing. Uh, mm -hmm. I would like to say not on purpose, but... Um, I think that the more difficult they make it, uh, the more delays and payments they can have. And then, you, you know, it, that's just a downstream issue. But as you set up hospital at home metrics, you have to find out who qualifies for it, um, who can who can be monitored at home. And one of the pleasant surprises we found with our, we call them FQHCs, or fairly federally qualified health centers, the patients in there, by definition, are going to be a lower socioeconomic class. They're actually our highest users of digital medicine. So that is encouraging for be able, being able to care for these people in, in their place. They also have the largest issues of transportation. So they have a large no-show rate. So the way you can defeat that is with digital medicine, hospital at home type uh, monitoring and services. So while it might not be ready for prime time now, certainly over the next five years, I think it's, it's gonna take a, a, a good place in healthcare. 
about Bell? I think we're taking some baby steps towards it. You know, uh, there are issues around policy, reimbursement, proper classification of patients. I think this hospital at home or any patient technological tool should be approached from the basic framework of understanding, is this something that is good for our patient and for our community? I think that's the one decision point that needs to be made. And of course, hospital at home, uh, if, if I qualify, I think it's good for a patient if it were me or my loved ones or my friends or anybody else. So we all agree that's the right thing to do for a patient as long as we can narrow down on the medical conditions and everything. What frustrates me, as Randy said, was this whole gamut that you have to navigate, that when a patient presents to an ER, which falls under the hospital at home program, they cannot be in an observation status. Those are artificial criteria that we are creating layers of bureaucracy that we are putting uh, between the doctors and what is best for the care mm -hmm. of our patients. Now you have to make sure that your patients are sick enough not to meet the observation criteria, but not too sick enough to be admitted to the hospital or one of its units. Then you have to make sure the access, the patient's home has access to broadband and all the kind of things. And, you know, in our part of the world in Ballot Hill, there are, uh, we have households, we have counties at quite an elevation. Can our nursing services, our medical services reach those patients, all those kind of things. But I think it all starts with some fundamental shifts or a paradigm shift in healthcare policy and reimbursement that accompanies hospital at home or remote patient monitoring, all those things. I think our reimbursement and policies are lacking the technological advancements that we are seeing in the realm of patient care. I'm gonna try to cover as many healthcare buzzwords as possible in an hour here. So social determinants of health, um, what are your views on this and, and how are your health systems you know, moving to sort of address that aspect of, of a patient and, and their unique factors that are gonna to contribute to their health? I think our health system, of course, we are part of an ACO. Population health is one of our bigger strategic imperatives. It also comes as a condition for the merger uh, that resulted uh, in valid health. We have something called accountable care communities, patient care navigators, uh, all those kind of things. So uh, we have several counties where we have patient care navigators um, that are dedicated to the care of uh, patients with chronic diseases. So they are not only looking at whether these patients have access to their medicines, are they taking it, are they able to afford it? But they are also going in and looking at nutritional issues, access to water, electricity, uh, you know, their living conditions, all those kind of things. My broader view around the social determinants of health is we got to be careful what we what we define as social determinants of health. I call it the elephant and the six blind men analogy. It is a buzzword, and I hate for it to be a buzzword. It has to be in our core DNA. As mm -hmm. much as the talk is about all this artificial intelligence, precision medicine and everything, in our part of the world, in rural America, uh, you have to have collective strategies to treat populations as a whole, addressing their underlying issues, access to healthcare, uh, transportation, affordability, broadband access, all those kind of things before you even start going to the next level where everybody's excited about. Mm -hmm. I agree. It's part of your 360 degree look at your patient um, and you, you can't ignore it. And, and I would argue that one of the, the biggest uh, social terms of health that we need to fix is transportation. And, and so that's where digital can overcome that. You know, you could probably make it 
you can argue that it's easier to get broadband to places than to get people to places, right? And so if you concentrate on that and connecting people that way, you can start to improve their access to care. It's not to say that you, you never see these people in person, but it's a step, right? It's someone checking in on them, making sure that they are getting what they need and, and trying to set up programs to help them. So it shouldn't be a buzzword. He's right. It needs to be an actionable word. It's important also uh, for at-risk patients and panels and how you classify them. Um, so there's, there's a lot of downstream issues with it, but I think the way you overcome the biggest access to care gap of transportation is to get the broadband to where they are. Mm-hmm. Now you just brought up digital health and that's where I was going to go next. Um, how do you think digital health can help enable better patient care? So if set up and run properly, um, it really can make a difference. We've had some strong um, indicators in our hypertension program of monitoring blood pressure at home of our at-risk patients. You know, actually, we found a a little gap in care through my mother-in-law who has Alzheimer's. She needed at-home blood pressure monitoring, but our system was not set up to do that because she has dementia. They didn't take into fact that she has a guardian, a caregiver, which is my wife and myself. And so we actually had our system changed to allow permission for that. So now you have another group that you can monitor and hopefully keep out of the hospital, um, especially with their uh, with their comorbidities. So if it's monitored well, diabetic monitoring, all these things, you can have a tremendous impact on the patient's care outcome and, and really preventative issues to keep them out of the hospitals and, and less comfortable care for them. I think digital care carries a lot of potential depending on how you uh, how you define it. In my view, you know, digital care, before you consider digital care, you have to map out a patient's journey. Traditionally, a patient's journey was uh, centered around hospital care and we navigated and put in all strategies in place and everything. That's not a holistic approach as we have learned around the pandemic and after the pandemic. There is a patient care journey that is before patient gets admitted to the hospital. There is an important journey after a patient gets discharged from the hospital. And more importantly, what we are realizing is there is a patient care journey that not at all involves the hospital. And that is where digital health comes in and makes a play for itself. You know, in our part of the world, in those challenging counties, we have to get, you know, we have to harness the power of data before we let digital innovation get harnessed by those populations and everything. We have got to provide broadband access, the tools, uh, the internet and electricity uh, before we think about it. So our issues in our part of the world, as much as we have embraced digital health, it has been a slow journey. It has been a deliberate journey because we are trying to be very, very cognizant of the needs that proceed before you go full in on digital health and uh, bring that into the mix. But we have embraced a lot of technologies, uh, you know, around our telemedicine visits, the school visiting, the school visits regard, uh, using the tele uh, modalities of care. Behavioral health is a huge focus. We are doing a hub and spoke model for certain specialities where you have certain outlying hospitals where patients are presenting you a specialist at certain hubs, providing care advice to those patients so that we can keep the patient where they are near their communities and prevent bottlenecks in some of our bigger hospitals, which is a big issue. Yeah. Yeah. We just, behavior health is, is tremendous. That, that's a great example. Um, Ashner actually has 
behavior health, telemedicine in every, so we have parishes instead of counties. So every parish in the state of Louisiana, Asher can reach out to behavior health wise, which is a tremendous opportunity. Mm -hmm. A great way to sort of extend care into those uh, underserved areas and, and provide specialties, yeah. uh, physicians. I mean, now you, you participate in the innovations team at Ballot Health. Are some of the more innovative things that you guys are seeing that you you know you say wow that's really interesting that's really cool that has a lot of potential i've always been bitten by this innovation bug so i've got to be careful and i have to check myself because there are a lot of shiny toys mm -hmm. out there so the way we kind of evaluate our innovation team which is a lot of gifted stakeholders approaching things from different angles financial operational it side of things myself from the clinical side of things is my basic criteria the underlying uh, criteria is, is this something that is good for the population we serve? Is this something that is great for rural America? If so, why? Does it address a particular pain point? Uh, you know, I still practice clinically, so I understand some of the pain points that we encounter as clinicians. And if the answers to two-thirds of those questions is a yes, we go in and probe those technologies further. So some of the things that we are looking at, you know, Ballad, we, we are embarking on a mega high reliability zero harm journey all those kind of things. So we are looking at technologies, diverse kind of technologies. We're looking at uh, preventing errors around medication reconciliation, all mm -hmm. using artificial intelligence to address that. Mm -hmm. We're looking at certain technologies around that. We're looking at uh, falls. Falls have become a big issue uh, because of short staffing and all those patients getting more sicker when they get admitted to the hospital. We're looking at technologies that uh, there are like, for example, Bluetooth socks that as soon as a patient gets up, there is a signal that gets thrown to the nurse that your patient has gotten up. We're looking at virtual sitter technologies so that we can extend our care to patients at high risk for falls. We're thinking about embracing, actually we, we have moved far ahead, uh, setting up an air traffic control for sepsis monitoring, a virtual sepsis monitoring center, a centralized hub at Ballad Health that will monitor all sepsis patients and make recommendations regarding their uh, regarding their care. So quite a few of those things we have uh, embraced. But these toys are something. But one of the things I think the biggest projects or imperatives that myself and my team is working on is, do we have the data do we have the right analytics and capabilities that will allow us to shed light on which technologies, what is a pain point, and where is the biggest bang for our buck? So right now we are involved in a parallel effort that kind of overlaps all the things that I talked about, which is developing clinical intelligence insights. Hmm by using various tools, including some of our favorite ones that we talk about, AI, uh, all those you know, language processing models and everything, uh, just to have the precise insights and design interventions for our patients. Yeah, Granny, any use cases of cool, innovative technologies yeah, you guys have come so across? He, he hit on a lot of the same things we're working on at Oshner, uh, you know, the sepsis headquarters and monitoring, remote monitoring, I, I think without repeating everything that he said, um, you know, probably the greatest thing that we could clone clinical staff, um, that would be a great innovation. Um, but knowing that we're not going to do uh, any cloning, the next thing you do is what, what can we do to make uh, patient care better from the provider aspect? So from bedside nursing. So with the nursing shortage that he mentioned, 
what you're left with is you traditionally had a seasoned nurse training a new nurse. Now you have a new nurse training a new nurse. And that's actually leading to burnout because the new nurse is overpressured and doesn't feel like that they're offering the right education to the brand new nurse. They're leaving the profession saying, this isn't what I thought. Now you're left with a brand new nurse. So how can we make nursing at the bedside better so they have a better, um, a better experience when they're at work? We're having extreme difficulties, you know, having just getting applicants for med surge nursing. We have a lot of nurses that are applying for emergency medicine and for critical care, pediatric critical care. That could be because that's the next step to doing an NP or CRNA, and they're not even trying to do traditional nursing. So the, the large influx of nurses into the NP world is also creating a vacuum that's an issue. So we're, we're trying to think innovatively, what can we do better? There's some remote monitoring that you could slap one thing on a patient's chest. It's not connected to any wires. It can provide you temperature, blood pressure, respiratory rate, cardiac output, all these different things. So that's better for the patient. They don't have wires. Someone's not coming in the room in the middle of the night. That also then allows your staff to do other things besides having to walk in the room and, and press a button. Right. Yeah. And so this gives them an, uh, an opportunity to do better things for the patient and hopefully to better patient outcomes. And then even further down the road, that helps you in predictive sepsis uh, events and then predictive fall events and so on. So, Well, I have a bunch more questions here, but I want to take the time to open it up to the evidence care audience. Uh, so a question from our audience is, um, do you think physicians want to see cost when considering aspects of care? Uh, in the equation while treating their patients? I mean, I'd say never more so than now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, again, if you think of COVID as a catalyst and ripping that Band-Aid off, the current uh, economic slash financial pressures on, on hospital systems are opening everyone's eyes to the cost of care and then the impact to down the line for them. And so I'd say now more so than ever, you have their attention for that. I think uh, from my side, I think physicians or clinicians are moving towards a broader value-based equation for care. Now, what is value? Value is quality plus experience divided by cost. So I think to just think about something as quality being a high-priced, high-end care, you have to think about the whole value equation, particularly given the cost sensitivities and everything. Now, couple that with what's happening in the backdrop of price transparency, uh, surprise billing, all those kind of things. There is a huge patient liability. There is a huge liability for healthcare systems, hospital systems to bend the cost curve. You know, I certainly was on the bandwagon of cost of care to be highlighted for clinician way back when, 2014 or something like that. And I'll just share this quick aha moment for me. I was doing my hospitalist rounding and it was a patient I'd been taking care of three, four days. On day, uh, on day four, the patient had been, I think, around there for eight or nine days, but that was my day four patient. Pharmacist comes running to me and says, Dr. Vashis, I'm sorry to bother you, but you're giving this particular medicine to this patient for lowering her calcium and uh, this costs $10,000 a day. And I'm like day eight, nine, I've already almost $100,000 just for one medicine and counting, who's paying for it and everything. And I'm like, this is unacceptable. Because here, here's the thing. Now you have to separate this discussion from the fact that 
Sometimes it is felt that clinicians do not want to talk about the costs of care. Let me reshape that argument. We can always talk about the costs of care as long as those are highlighted to us in real time, not retrospectively. I'm not going in my rounding or any other clinician for that matter, thinking that I'm gonna rake up $10,000 in costs of care today. It is what is happening. My awareness is not there with real-time data. So how do you address that pain point in a seamless, invisible way that makes it apparent for clinicians and help them be a part of the team that bends the cost curve while maintaining the quality of care? I think that is a salient issue to consider. And, and we have more um, contracts of at-risk that, that really push you toward that value-based care, which is never more important than it is now. One of the issues coming out of this, it's not gonna be a issue of producing more RVUs or anything like that. It's, it's gonna be providing the highest quality of care at the best value, as he mentioned. And if you're not, if, if you're not focusing and working toward that, you will be left behind. Do you think more and more physician contracts are gonna include some aspect of sharing in that value creation with the physicians? Yes, I mean, you're, yeah. our, we have value-based measures already that, that our physicians are tied to in bundles of care, so absolutely. I think that train has long left the station, yep. I think. Yeah, uh, so another question from our audience. Um, what do you think physicians' perceptions of the EHR is and, and their experience and whether or not they're, they're truly satisfied with what they're getting from their EHR? I think there is no other issue that polarizes more clinicians or physicians than the whole issue of the EHR. What it brings or what it does not bring to the table. An opinion of one physician is an opinion of one physician, but it is very colorful around EHR. But I think the basic question is, how do we optimize the EHR? Why was EHR created? It was created to address some pain points that hindered us from delivering seamless patient care. And what we have inadvertently done is we have increased and complicated our workflows so that somehow EHR has become the middleman that is perceived in the minds and hearts of physicians as coming between them and delivering sound patient care. So I believe as a physician leader that if an EHR is supplemented with certain capabilities to remove those pain points and everything, it is the most wonderful thing because here is what I worry about. If the clinical variation from physician X to physician Y to physician Z is way too much, it's not good for our patients, it's not good for our costs of care or anything from the value equation standpoint. And EHR has the unique capabilities to make that decision making a little more seamless and painless, but it has to be done the right way because physicians initially were kind of out of the box models of the EHR that they came and everything, that led to a profound dissatisfaction. What I'm encouraged by is a lot of physician nursing participation in the informatics space. All their needs were on the menu. Now suddenly over the last five, six, seven, eight years, what we have seen is clinicians showing up on the table to design their EHR and take care of those pain points for our patients. Yeah, I think there is a demographic to it, too, because you still have a large percentage of physicians who started out on paper that are that are still using this and they never have really bought into this deal. It's just been a new way of practicing medicine that was forced on them. And so they're they're not adopting it as much as 
a group that's known nothing but an EHR, right? So you have to think about who you're dealing with there. To augment some of what he's saying too, the EHRs we thought were initially invented to make us more efficient. They were actually really invented to collect data. And there wasn't really a thought about the efficiencies or anything else. It was just a matter of way that we could analyze data better. As it's evolved now, it's gotten better to say, okay, how do we make it a better experience for the clinician? How is it more efficient? How do we make it better for the patient? How do we make the patient come in and, and adopt this technology as well? What I think is lacking right now is they've done very well now opening up the front door and making it easy for the patient to come in, but that has not kept up with backdoor efficiency. So once you get through the door, you know, I, I make it the analogy, it's like a five lane to a one lane, right? So you've got everybody there and now they're here and it's, it's too obstructive to work through that. So you need to constantly work with your team at your facility and probably, again, no more than ever have you had clinicians involved in the designs now to make back end easy. One of the biggest problems that we found in our system, and it's actually a national problem, is we created such an open door for patients to send us messages that hmm. we created a whole backlog of problem for our primary care group especially, uh, which led to a tremendous level of burnout simply because they just couldn't keep up with these messages. And then you had standards, you need to answer every message within 24 hours. So inadvertently put a lot of pressure on them. And I like to tell the story, one of our primary care doctors said, it's so ridiculous. She got a question about what attachment she need, the patient should use for her Nutribullet to make better vegetable uh, you know, drinks or whatever. And she's just like, how am I taking time out of my schedule to answer this, you know? And so that was the kind of stuff that just came flying in. So we've worked hard at our system. Um, Dr. Uh, Pedro Casabon, who unfortunately passed away at the beginning of this year, that was kind of his last stand in, into the world was to fix that. And we've made some really in, important measures, cutting our, just in this short amount of time from the beginning of the year to now by 2 million uh, messages we've cut in our system, so. So another question from our audience, do you guys find that hospital throughput is still an issue after COVID? And if so, yeah. what are your health systems doing I, to address that? Yeah, I, I, I can take a stab at that. Hospital throughput is a very big issue in our part of the world, and I'm sure it's in other parts of the world as well. What has happened, you know, with so many of the nursing staff leaving and everything, so that part of care delivery has gone. But the traffic has really rebounded to the hospitals in a big way. Our ER visits are through the roof. That's setting number one. Setting number two is behavioral health visits have exploded. And there are no uh, triaging mechanisms uh, that are timely. So that's creating bottlenecks in our ER and all those things. Third consideration to put in mind is skilled nursing facilities, post-acute care facilities are in the worst crises around staffing, closures, everything that you can think of. So they cannot accept patients from our hospitals, and our hospitals are full of patients who need post-acute care, rehab, skilled nursing facility, you name it, IV antibiotics and everything. So that has led to this cataclysmic proportion of ED throughput and bottlenecks that is unprecedented. Some of our biggest hospitals are very, very afflicted by it. It is very worrisome. 
So what have we done, uh, you know, with all our ED times, ED door to dock time, uh, door to discharge time, door to admit time, whatever it is, left without being seen, all these metrics, we keep a very, very close eye on that. And about four or five months ago, our big three hospitals, they proceeded, they created additional space on the med surge floors. I'll give you an example. One of our hospitals, Holston Valley Medical Center in Kingsport, Tennessee, they opened a discharge unit or a discharge lounge. So what their nursing leadership, which is headed by their CNO and the nurse manager, what they do is every morning and before that, the evening before they identify 15 slam dunk discharges that can happen early in the morning, get those patients discharged early in the morning, move those 15 patients quickly to the discharge lounge where they can wait for the ride or whatever barriers are remaining and open up those 15 beds and everything. Other consideration around this is that ED throughput should not only be viewed in terms of something happening in the ED. As a hospitalist, I really appreciate the fact that ED throughput is a surrogate marker of what's happening on your med surge floors, ICUs, and the PCUs of the world. So certainly very, very challenging given the skilled nursing facility, behavioral health, staffing shortage, all those kind of things coming in and people are and including ourselves, our organization are coming up with a great, great set of solutions. The problem, our times have improved, but the problem still persists. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly a hot button for an ED doctor, right? Um, so we look at our boarding crisis right now. Some people look at it as an acute cause by COVID. That's actually probably one of the biggest falsehoods. This has been going on since the age of time, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go back and Google boarding crisis, you can find articles back to 2005, 2003, most recent um, uh, literature probably around 2018, 19, with now more studies coming out, but it reached such a level that the uh, ASAP Organization for Emergency Medicine actually crafted a letter, sent it to the White House. It's now been endorsed by several specialties. Including what, Society of Hospital including Medicine. Including Society of Hospital Medicine, yeah. and which is important because you, this is a this is a great uh, a great example of teamwork. It has to it has to flow together. Uh, but what we've done in you know, our organization is really dive into is what is going on on the floors? What are the delays? What what is it? Discharge lounge is a great idea. Um, we found that our maintenance crews would come in and, and, and clean the room and it would be ready, but we had to wait for the nurse to turn it ready. So can we let them start to turn it ready in Epic and then force that up there? Where do patients belong? Do they belong in the hallways of the emergency department when there's overcrowding? Or do they belong in the hallways of the floor? That's a big hot button, right? Because one of the reasons that they're backed up in the ED is there are not enough nurses on the floor. As I mentioned, there's not uh, not people, not many nurses going into med surge anymore. So uh, then you're looking at, well, do you pay agency to keep beds open? So we've decided not to pay agency, which is the right move, so we can reset the labor standard that's gotten so out of control since the pandemic. So that's caused more more boarding and, and, and you know and, and crisis in the emergency department. Then you have to look at some of the solutions where we're going to do more frequent rounding in the emergency department. Well, that's great. That creates more orders for the ER nurses to do while they're trying to take care of acute care and throughput. So we got them to give support to the ER nurses and send people down when they could so they can process these orders. The emergency department has long been the solution for this. And the solution has not ever fixed the problem. So now people are re-looking at it. Um, if you have a 
They like to call them EDOUs, Emergency Department Observation Unit. That's probably not the best way to look at it. The ED physician has decided on the disposition of that patient and it goes into the system. And so that's a system care now, right? Not the ED caring for that anymore. There's been some success in getting patient throughput in the EDOU better than an observation unit on the floor. Part of that is if a patient gets up to a regular room, regular, it's harder to get them out that they've shown. So they think that the ED can just get people out better. Well, that's not necessarily true. It's just more that you have someone in there that's constantly monitoring the results and not afraid to discharge someone at 2 a.m. So you have to think about where you're using your resources. It's not a good idea to put a highly productive ED clinician, whether it's a physician or a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant, into an observation unit where now they're sitting and waiting for results to come back and then dispoing rather than seeing people acutely. So who you put in that unit, uh, in the protocols in the unit, can make a big difference in that. And then if you're by nature putting them in with an expectation of they're going to be there less than 24 hours, what's the next big question? Should they even be in there? Are you putting them there for the appropriate reason? Are you putting them there because it's a social determinant of health issue, transportation? What might it be, right? So um, now I will say that <clears throat> we we have everyone's attention on this matter, and I think we're coming up with some creative solutions. Mm-hmm. We've got time for one more from the audience. Never heard of that. Right. <laughs> and I think a lot of us would probably agree there's a, there's a place for clinical documentation, back office responsibilities, taking the burden off the clinicians, let's say nurses as well as doctors. But as far as, you know, clinical diagnosis, therapy, treatment, et cetera, patients taking away the oftentimes the clinical just all that you guys as physicians have when you're going to treat patients, what is your uh, yeah. thought process around what that is today and what it's going to be? Yeah, I think there is a lot of buzz. There is a lot of excitement around chat GPT. I certainly can't keep up with all the literature and all the fancy news that comes every hour. So it's hard to keep up with the buzz, the excitement, a lot of questions from community, your family, friends, everybody, that this is going to change the face of healthcare as we know it. It will. I think over a period of time, but let me put certain things in context. I think it is very high time for some of us as leaders in healthcare to kind of temper our expectations uh, and temper this hype around chat GPT or uh, generative, any kind of generative AI tools, um, be it Google or the Microsoft and everything. Because ultimately what is generative AI and all these algorithmic modalities they depend on a certain series of inputs that will determine the series of outputs that are gonna follow the data. So inputs are very, very critical. As I like to say, crap in and crap out. So what is the context behind those inputs is very, very important. Who are the moderators of that content for input? You know, if you look in the Epic EMR space and everything, what are you using? Your claims-based data? Are you using your your problem sets to generate a series of, uh, you are trying to decipher a signal, a signal from the noise. So I'm a firm believer that unless you have looked at a series of inputs and made sure there is adequate discipline, cleansing and policing around that, uh, the output has to be measured very, very carefully. As I like to say, you know, it has to be a human-centered design. 
always, always, always provider and clinician-led and patient-centric. As long as you follow that ethos, those core sets of principles, I think ChatGPT can take us to a place where we have never been. The second thing is all these algorithmic models of learning so far have a very big shortcoming, which is inequities in healthcare. They perpetuate the biases and the perceived inequities in healthcare. So who is addressing that? Whose job it is? Because inadvertently, the whole chat GPT or any other AI models of learning may lead us to a path astray. The problem points we were trying to solve may get perpetuated or worsen. So I'm all on the AI chat GPT, generative AI learning models, machine learning, language processing, all those kind of things. But we want to put certain boundaries, guardrails in place, certain context in place before we go all in. You guys talked about health equity being a, a big priority for both of your systems. I'm curious, um, Dr. Morsi said transportation, and Dr. Bashir said, you know, food insecurity or nutrition. Um, is that as, how well do you integrate with the payers or public health to address those um, issues? Because it's, to me, it seems to be a societal problem, not just something that's, that's on the health system. How do you guys work together um, to address that? Well, I, you know, th there's a governmental solution to some of those things and the other, uh, the payers aren't touching it, right? But if it makes sense for your institution to provide transportation, which then leads to better care, that's great. Or provide the home monitoring equipment for free, which leads to better care, that's great. Um, so you have to weigh, you know, for lack of a better term, it's an ROI, not just on money, but on patient outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so you have to decide where to spend that because the government can't be the answer for all and the payers are not going to be the answer for all. So you have to learn how to play in the sandbox. I think from, from our standpoint, you know, that continues to be the billion dollar question. Uh, payers have certainly lagged behind in terms of providing the support on the holistic dimensions of healthcare. So what we do is, of course, our discussions with payers are ongoing, but that that support is not there as much as we would expect it to be. What we have done in our system is accountable care communities, grants from CMMI, Centers for Medicare, Medicaid Innovation. We have worked with a lot of non-governmental organizations, uh, faith-based organizations, and it just takes a whole village. Our city, uh, uh, county health departments are helping us and everything. Because at the end of the day, everyone agrees that unless you fix the core issues, what you are seeing in the ED or in your hospitals is a manifestation of something that is bigger and that's underlying. We have those conversations all the time in our C-suite, whose responsibility it is in everything. I think it, all of us have to play uh, a share of our role in um, addressing the social inequities. Well, I think we're gonna wrap it up there, uh, Granny. Amit, thank you so much for joining us today, and thank you for being part of Evidence Care Palooza. Everybody, let's uh, give us. a round of applause. Thank y'all. So, thank you.